This girl is angry. Well, hello, Michelle. Hi, Geordie. So lovely to see your beautiful face. And it's for reals this time. We're actually looking at each other in the flesh. Well, almost. Almost. You're upstairs. I'm downstairs. We're doing the same old, same old. It's the upstairs, downstairs moment. It's it's only fair that I should be upstairs, by the way, because the servants lived downstairs, didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> yes, thank you. But did the servants get a massive fat baby glass of wine that you dropped no, they did not. to me and it's delicious? So excusez-moi, excusez-moi. Enjoy that glass of wine, Michelle, because you're about to fly off to Australia tomorrow, aren't you? I am. I'm so excited. It's the first time in nearly four years. I'm heading back. Going to be seeing Jen the Hen, seeing the fam. Can't wait. Do you think we might get Jen the Hen on the podcast next episode? Do you think that might happen? I think you need to ask that, Geordie. She's not going to say <laughs> yes if I ask. So here Jen, you go. I'm asking now. I'm asking now. Jen, would you please... Just give us a, just come on just for a couple of seconds. Just say hi to your fans because you have many. (laughs) A lot of our listeners really enjoy our Jen moments. So please just say hi. Yeah. We'd love to hear from you, Jen. Thank you. True, Jen. True. True, Jen. True. So, Mish, Michelle, Michelle, Michelle. You're Michelle and I'm... Geordie. Geordie, that's right. <laughs> and we are eavesdroppers. No, you are eavesdropping. Oh. <laughs> Hang on, it's a bit confusing. You, our friends out there listening right now, you're eavesdropping on our conversation, but we love it and we want you to. Mm. You can't chip in though, and if you do, we can't hear you, so it doesn't matter. But I will tell you who has chipped in, Michelle. Who? Recently. Well, we've heard from Bjorkvin again. All the way over, not in Iceland, where he should be, but in somewhere else, a hotter country. That's where he lives these days. He got back in touch, you know, and he told me some stuff about Kerry Thornley, who is one of the masterminds of the Illuminatus trilogy. Yes. Now, I have a lot to tell you about it. I'm not going to tell you this week. I'll try and slot it in next week. Or even in a Patreon. I know I said I'd do that about the Idiot Love Pass information that he had as well. So maybe we have a whole Björkvin corner on Patreon. But that's not fair because then he can't hear all his wonderful information being heard. Unless he drops a penny or two in our tip jar over at Patreon. Yes. Oh, but thank you so much Björkvin for getting in touch with all this incredible info. I can't wait to hear it. Well, it's really interesting. He's got some great things to say. And I will I will tell you next episode because this week it's jam freaking packed, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I called you a bitch just then. I don't know. I I'm do. Sorry, I you always to. call me little bitch. You just forgot the little. <laughs> <That's all. laughs> so what have you got for me? I'm actually very excited. You gave me a little teaser of oh, a nugget of nothingness. But... I did. You thought you were getting some hot gossip, but actually what I, what I said to you over dinner was I can't wait to tell you this story. Yeah, I thought you, you... said, what story? I said, <laughs> well, you just wait in here. I'll tell you in the podcast. And you said, oh, I thought you were going to tell me some Canberra news. And I said, well, it is Canberra news, Michelle, oh. because this is a true crime. It's true crime time. This is a cr- true crime story that Ren told me about some weeks ago, when oh. she realised, you know, she's a she's a true hot hot blooded 
She's a proper eavesdropper now, our Ren, who did she's a she's eavesdropping research researcher. Recently. Amazing. Oh, yes. I'm gutted. And I now she's Ren. all on board. Mm. Absolutely. And she has told me this. Now, there's a bit of a, a strange connection with this story. It's in Canberra. Yeah. And it was in the 90s. Now, I wasn't in Australia in the 90s. No. You may have been. So maybe you do know more about this, but we'll wait and see. But this story, I have gleaned it from many sources. There's the Sydney Morning Herald, Mm. and there's also a case file on this. I think it's episode 130, the podcast case file with Casey, the Australian. Okay. And also, Ren gave me a gift of a book called... Joe Cinque's Consolation subheading is A True Story of Death, Grief and the Law by Australian writer Helen Garner. It was written in 2004. The author actually spent time at the trials and speaking to family and friends. So it's a really interesting book, Michelle. I'm reading it on public transport and I'm enjoying it. Wow. I have to say I'm not really enjoying it because it's actually making me feel quite dark. And you'll find out why when I start to tell you the story. I think I know a little bit about this story. I, it's ringing bells. I feel like I know something. You may know this yeah. story. Well, not, yes. I'm not going to know the ins and outs. I just know the bare bones of this. <gasps> well, to be fair, Michelle, it was really hard to get the info together because I heard the story and I heard it in like an elevator pitch style form from Ren. She gave me the quick rundown. I was like, what? I couldn't understand it. Mm. Then she told me some more. Then she got me the book. And then I did some research and my God, there's so much different information out there. And also it's hard to piece together because you'll find as I start to tell you, there'll be a lot of questions, but just you wait and see. I'll try and give you the answers. I'm only halfway through the book. It's really fascinating. But Ren's interest in this story came about because obviously it was local at the time. I don't know if she lived there but it it all happened in the suburb of Downer near Dixon where you were once employee of the month at the local McDonald's. I was but if you remember our last Canberra murder was in Downer. Yeah. Karen Rowland. Yes. Quite a busy little suburb. It's all in the name. It's a Downer. It is quite the Downer. Also her friend is a filmmaker and he was at the uni when this happened this is all about uni students. Her friend who's a filmmaker Satiris Danukas. I hope I've said that right. Satiris, she calls him Stephen, Satiris Danukas. He turned Helen's book into a film of the same name in 2016. Joe Cinque's Consolation, I think it's called. Okay. Also, and here's another weird twist of coincidence. Yeah. Her cousin, Tony Gambali, the yeah. musician, he did the soundtrack. And <gasps> guess who knows him as a personal friend is our researcher who we often say he's not a unicorn because he's real his name is al teggett al knows him he's friends with tony gambali who is our friend ren's cousin it's all connected god i thought you were gonna say that he knew joe chinque okay because obviously for anyone who um doesn't remember right back in season one we did a hometown murder our very first one where we we're friends with a murderer. If you haven't That's listened right. to that, go back. It's a classic. It's quite the harrowing episode for Chilling. both of us. So we're in Dixon, Ant Hill Street. Is it called Ant Hill Street or Antle? Antle. Because there's no Ant H Hill. in Antle Street. I, why there was Ant Hill? How do you say it? Ant Hill. Ant Hill. Ant Hill. Hill. Well, it's not Ant Hill Street, Michelle. It's, it's spelt Ant. I don't know, actually. Ant Hill. No, you just say Ant Hill, but without the Ant Hill Street. 
Antle Street, <laughs> 1997. I know how to say that at least. Anyway, this woman, there'll be a few names I get wrong. This woman, Anu Singh, she's mm. a uni student and she lives there with her boyfriend, Joe Cinque. Joe was from an Italian family. He lived in Newcastle and he became a civil engineer, age 24. Anu was from a Punjabi family, also from Newcastle, New South Wales. Both of Anu's parents were doctors and she was a couple of years younger than Joe when they met at a nightclub. Private bin. It wasn't the private bin. It was in Newcastle. I don't know what it was called. Caucus or something. I don't know. The RSL. Who knows? But Anu was already in a long-term relationship. Despite this... Anu and Joe began an on-off relationship. So Anu was actually cheating on her boyfriend, Simon, at this time. But when Simon discovered it, he broke it off. This breakup was quite devastating to Anu because Simon had been particularly harsh during the, the split and he called her intellectually inferior. This enraged Anu because she's coming from a very intelligent family. She's very intelligent and very attractive herself. You know, she's got it all going on. Yeah, but she's a cheater. She's a cheater. What did she expect? Previously, Anu had developed some issues with her body image and she spent a lot of time at the gym. She experimented with speed and developed bulimia. Okay. So there's a lot of drug use. There's a lot of body image issues in this story and mental health issues mental health issues and other things so please strap in because it is a bumpy ride Mm. so her concerned family would see her pacing up and down in rooms or scratching at her skin and all sorts of things getting thinner and thinner and thinking she needed to be thinner when she was actually perfectly fine they tried to get her help but she wouldn't give permission so they couldn't help her and anyway she had joe now at this point her and joe were getting really really close Mm -hmm. and they ended up having a proper relationship they'd be calling each other all the time absolutely obsessed but her family didn't know about joe because they had said you need to focus on your studies she'd already done Uh... i think a bachelor of science or something had got an economics degree and she was going back to canberra Mm-hmm. to study law so the family were all about her getting those grades and not being you know distracted by boys but yeah. dear joe he was very caring and all he wanted to do was look after her so they carried on their relationship and it became long distance and then she went to back to canberra to study law at anu and they would see each other every weekend he would drive five and a half hours down to canberra from newcastle in new south wales it's on the coast And be there all weekend, sometimes coming home at about three in the morning, his mother says. She was worried about him driving there and back all the time. And then during this time, Anu's health started to deteriorate. And whenever she called him, even if he was at work doing this job, he'd drop everything and just come and look after her. She's just got this guy wrapped around her little finger. He's at her beck and call. I don't like the sound of this. I think that's how his parents feel as well. Eventually... He did move to Canberra to be with her and he got himself a job and they set up home in a townhouse in Antle Street. That name <laughs> that we had was so controversial at the beginning of this podcast episode. It's in the North Canberra suburb of Downer. As you said before, Michelle, it's a downer. It is it's a actually downer. really cool. It's quite nice. Like it's a it. nice little place, but it's it's a downer, mate. It's a downer. Anyway. I'd say that the houses are very expensive there at the moment. I bet they you? are. I mean, everything in Canberra is expensive mm. now. Australia's gone through the roof. <laughs> so back to the story. His parents 
as I said before, were concerned when they saw what they perceived to be a change in his behavior. They felt he was being, like you said, Michelle, controlled by Anu, mm. and they were never convinced that he she was very good for him. Nevertheless, they moved in, they got a joint bank account, they called it the marriage account, it looked like they were headed for the aisle, but her health problems continued. Mm, I like how you say health problems because these do sound a bit like mental health problems. I also think, I'm reading the book and I also think she was using drugs. Let's not beat about the bush. And I don't know much about the drug that they love in Australia. Ice. Ice. Ice, ice, baby. Ice, ice, baby. I don't think it's very nice. It's very good for you. And I think that sometimes you can feel (laughs) discombobulated and feel like there's, you know, things crawling under your skin or that your head's not on the right body. And that's the two things that her parents said they heard her saying during this time, you know. So she also said she felt like she had welts and crawling. Yeah, this crawling sensation under her skin. She was agitated. There were other symptoms. She did see doctors, had lots of tests. Nothing could be diagnosed. Drugs. So by 1997, she had convinced herself that she had a muscle wasting disease and that she was dying. I think she even told her father that she was dying. She became depressed and withdrawn. And at one point, Joe mentioned the drug Ipecac or Ipecac. Never heard of that. The guy Casey on Case Files called it Ipecac, but I like to say Ipecac. And as, as Ipecac. you and Al Taggart know, I do it my own way. Ipecac. <laughs> so that is an actual, this is a drug that they use to induce vomiting in poisoning cases. Oh. And it's very dangerous if it's misused. Misuse of Ipecac has been blamed for the death of singer Karen Carpenter in 1983. Do you remember she died of an eating disorder related, like they said it was a heart attack, didn't they, I think. But apparently Ipecac had something to do with it. And it's also been used in cases of Munchausen syndrome by proxy. So when people are trying to secretly poison someone or not not that they're trying to secretly poison them, they're trying to secretly make them ill so they can care for them. That's what Munchausen syndrome by proxy is. Munchausen syndrome just on its own is where you do it to yourself. Right. But by proxy, someone else is doing doing it to someone else. And the other person doesn't know. But you can see why bulimics would love this drug because it makes them throw up. Oh, but you shouldn't. Scary. You shouldn't take it because no, it's of not course very good not. for you and it can kill you and all sorts. So Anu did take Ipecac briefly, later becoming angry with Joe for mentioning it to her. She blamed him for all the things that were going badly in her life. Well, he sounds like the only good thing in her life. I know. At one point... Anu became convinced that she had contracted HIV and she told a friend how unfair it was that Chinque didn't seem to be affected by it at all. So she told her friend that she was going to put a drop of her infected blood (gasps) on his toothbrush. Oh my God. I know, this is where her head's at at this point. And she told another friend that she wanted to go on a rampage killing Chinque, her ex-boyfriend Simon, who'd said that awful thing about her, and all the doctors that she believed had failed to correctly diagnose her. This girl is angry and she wants to kill anyone who's ever said anything bad about her, anyone who she feels has done bad by her. Done her wrong. Done her wrong. Wow. But let's just be clear here. She does not have AIDS. She does not have this other self-diagnosed illness, muscle wasting. She's basically just made it all up. Either that or she's having a psychotic break. Right. Or she has 
some sort of mental health issues. Well, clearly, yeah. Or she's taking too many drugs. After she told this friend that she wanted to go on a, a murderous rampage, she then told the friend, I've studied psychiatric texts and it wouldn't be too hard to convince someone that you're insane. <gasps> Chilling. When her HIV test came back negative, she then believed she had MS and was showering up to 10 times a day, which is odd. How does that affect MS? I don't see the correlation between that. It's just something that was that was taken into account and that kind of showed that she was mentally unhinged at the time. Does she it? thought there was all these things wrong with her. She's taking lots of showers. She's becoming depressed, withdrawn. You know, we're trying to paint a picture here of a woman yeah. who's having a bit of a rough time. Yeah. I wonder if she passed her exams, though. Well, Who knows? That's, that's not in any also, of the books that I'm Also, remember, reading. she's studying law. Law. Okay. So once again, the family sought help for her, but they couldn't admit her to any facilities because they needed her permission and she wasn't going to give it. She had a friend, Michelle, a girl by the name of Madhavi Rao. They were friends in the uni. Yeah. I don't know how they met. Apparently Madhavi was quite mellow compared to the exuberant Anu. Okay. But they went to uni together and one day they went to the university library and researched texts and made photocopies from the Right to Die Society on assisted suicide and other things. And they had all these things photocopied out. Yeah. This is getting creepier and creepier. How to kill yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And that happened in the months of September and October in 1997. Anu spoke to several friends at this time about wanting to die and wanting to end her own life. Okay. She decided that she would shoot herself and she went to great lengths to purchase a gun until a conversation with a known drug user on campus told her that an overdose would be a much easier, cleaner, better way to go. Helpful. Thank you. <laughs> you want to kill yourself? Thanks for the advice. Just, yeah. just get fucked up on drugs. How kind of him to be so thoughtful. <laughs> Thank you for that. So she went about selling off all her clothes and gave away her CDs in her bid to end her own life. So she said, this is it, wrapping it up, yeah. getting rid of all my stuff. And she did tell all her friends, but they all thought that she was bluffing, except Madhavi. She thought, you know, this woman really wants to end her life. She's having a miserable time. I'm going to be there for her. You know, I'm going to help her. But can I just ask, hmm? where's Joe through all this? Joe's there. He doesn't know that she wants to end her own life. Right. I don't think that he does anyway. Okay. All of her friends just thought she was dramatic, narcissistic, you know, over the top. Yeah. Meanwhile, she's taking this explanation from the junkie that she met on campus about how it would be to die from an OD of heroin. She thought, oh, that does sound quite nice, you know, painless, quick. So she went about purchasing half a gram of heroin. The seller also showed Anu and Madhavi how to inject themselves and then they tried heroin for the first time. Why not? They'd already tried everything else. I can't say that. I can't say that. I don't know that they had. I can only imagine because we went to, you know, you went to that uni, didn't you? Yeah. Did you go to ANU? Yeah, I did go to ANU and I mean, it was a full on drugs campus. You could get anything and everyone was into heroin and I was there earlier than Anu. I heard that it was... More heroin deaths per capita than anywhere else, I think, in the world. I don't know how accurate that is. I wouldn't be surprised because it was just, it was the drug that was there and everyone was doing it. So, Mm. yeah. I mean, and it's full on. 
Christiane F. Do you remember that book? Christiana F. Yep. Yeah. In the Bahnhof Zoo in Berlin, they were all on heroin. I remember reading that. Jen had that book. And Did she? she left it out an impressionable 12-year-old. Well, we all read it. All of us girls read Christiane. Yeah, I, read I loved I loved I it. I loved it too. But, I mean, it scared the shit out of me for taking heroin. Yeah, I think that's what it was meant to do. Anyway, back to Anu and her story. So she's now uh, smacked up. She's had her first taste of H, horse, <laughs> whatever you'd like to call it. A month later, she returned to purchase another gram. And when this drug dealer asked her why she needed so much, Anu told her, I'm going to kill myself and someone's coming with me. <gasps> Dramatic. She didn't say who. So the two girlfriends, Madhavi and Anu, they tried and failed to shoot the heroin correctly with the needle and they needed another friend because then when they weren't being under the watch for life, this very kind drug dealer who was helping them the first time, they needed a bit more help. So another friend came around, showed them how to do it until they got to be really good at it. Jesus. Anu had booked in to see a relationship counsellor. I'm sorry that my information is all over the place. It's because there's an awful lot of information yeah. out there and it's not all in the same timeline. Yeah. So I've tried to gather as much as I possibly can. So she'd booked in to see a relationship counsellor on her own. I don't think she took Joe with her, but okay. she did tell the therapist that Joe was abusing her both mentally and physically. But I'm pretty sure that never comes up again. So there's no corroboration of that? No. Madhavi and Anu then planned a dinner party for the evening of Monday, the 20th of October, at Anu and Joe's place in Antel Street. So Joe had been to see his family the weekend before. On the Sunday he left, he asked his mum on the 19th of October, he said to his mum, Maria Cinque, we've got this dinner party tomorrow night. Do you have any food that I can take? <laughs> um, did you make anything, mum? Because you're a great cook. And she said, oh, I wish I'd known beforehand. Yeah. I don't have anything. So he said, oh, it's okay. We'll just, we'll just order in fried chicken or something like that. So off he went to have this lovely dinner party with his fiance and all their friends were coming around. Meanwhile, unbeknownst to Joe, Madhavi and Anu had told their guests that it was Anu's farewell dinner. So all these ghoulish students turned up to see for themselves if she was going to kill herself. A lot of them believed that she was bluffing, yeah. but yet they still turned up. Fuck. So That's creepy. It's creepy, right? And Anu had also told Joe and Madhavi that she had too much food and needed more guests. So uh, Madhavi and Anu actually drove around looking for more people that they knew in the streets and door knocking saying come on over come on over so they had a massive full house a big old audience if you like I'm sorry that's weird as well meanwhile Joe doesn't know as far as we know Joe doesn't know well he just thinks it's a random dinner party with lots of randoms lots of randoms a witness at this first dinner party uh, said that the atmosphere appeared very normal. Now, it says the dinner party is the 24th of October. Now I'm really confused. But it was on the Monday of this week, right, Of in the, in late October. Okay. They said the atmosphere was really normal, uh, that Anu and Joe seemed to be really loving and affectionate towards each other. And Madhavi had brought along a friend who didn't know Joe and Anu. Okay. And her name was Olivia. And before arriving at the dinner, Madhavi had shown Olivia track marks where Anu had been practicing Ew. injecting on Madhavi. Oh. And then she then told Olivia what Anu planned that evening, which was to take her own life. Well, the evening passed without incident. The guests went home. Madhavi drove a few of them back. And the conversation in the car revealed that Anu was going to kill herself now that 
all her guests had left. Some of the guests at this point were like, well, should we be calling someone? Should we call the police or try and stop her? Yeah. But Madhavi convinced them, no, no, this is what she wants. It's nothing, not for you to interfere or whatever. Later that evening, Anu crushed up some tranquilizers and put them in Joe's coffee. She didn't want him to interfere with, well, that's what she says anyway. Okay. So she knocked him out. Then her and Madhavi tried to inject him with heroin, but they couldn't find the vein. What? And the heroin congealed. Yeah. Hang on. Inject him? I'm afraid so. Why? Trying to get him out of the way so that they could, so Anu could kill herself. That's what she said. But I don't know what she told him. She's already drugged him. Yeah. Oh, I smell a rat here. He woke up the next day completely unaware of what had gone on. But Madhavi had spoken to some friends at the law school after this account. Like she told them what had happened that evening after everyone had gone home. And they said, mate, this is not good. You need to get the fuck away from this woman. That's assault. You're in danger of becoming an accomplice. So at this point, she says that she's had enough of Anu and her schemes. And she doesn't want anything more to do with her. But over the next couple of days, Anu is then asking around until she gets her hands on some Rehypnol. So she bought 15 from a drug user, like a, a heroin user. And this person told her that one would suffice if you're combining it with heroin. And unbeknownst to Joe, yet another dinner party was planned for the Friday of that week. So they've had one on Monday. They try to knock him out. He wakes up with a bit of a hangover and just goes, what? Yeah. And then the rest of the week... Then he comes back on the Friday after work and finds his house full of people yet again. Now, Anu had told people it was definitely her suicide party this oh. time. Still no one has mentioned it to Joe. And very surprised to see all these lovely ghoulish guests around his dinner table. Anu's in a great mood on this occasion. Oh, she's laughing and joking. She told one of her friends, I think Len Mancini, one of her friends, we had a couple of Rohypnols and she was feeling really fun and happy or she'd had one or something. And again, the evening passed without incident. The guests went home and they all thought she was nothing more than an attention seeker. But later, Anu crushed 10 Rohypnols and put them in Joe's coffee. And once he passed out, she started to inject him with the heroin, Michelle. Oh my God, what is going on? She continued to inject him throughout the night, the <gasps> next day. The following evening, she called Len Mancini. So Joe is in and out of consciousness. Oh, my God. And she called this friend Len, her friend from law school, and said Joe had slept for 15 hours and she didn't know if there was something wrong with them and what should she do, what should she do. I think Len was in on what was going on as well. At this point, Joe actually takes the phone and talks to Len. It's recorded on his answering machine. He says, oh, my mind's working, but my body's not, you know. I'll be right, mate. She's worrying over nothing. That so hang on. So she's been pumping him full of heroin and he still has the wherewithal to be able to speak. Yeah, absolutely. So she's making loads of phone calls. She's leaving the house. He's now, you know, at this point he's not well and he's lying on their bed. She's leaving the house. She's buying more <gasps> heroin. She's coming back. She's sticking it in him. What? She's making more phone calls. It's pretty bad. This goes on for 36 or so hours, oh Michelle. Eventually, she tells one of her friends that Chinque's lips were blue and he's only taking one breath every 10 seconds. This girl on the end of the phone says, this is the one who sold her the rehypnol. She said, you need to call the ambulance. She said, well, I can't because then he'll know what I've done and he'll be really angry. <gasps> And then she says, well, I don't give a shit. You know, you need to, you can't have control over someone's life like this. You need to call the bloody paramedics. Yeah. 
And if you don't, I will. I'll come round. And, and she said, no, you can't come round because you'll call them. She didn't give the address, I don't think. I can't remember all the details, but she insists that she goes and gives him mouth to mouth when she says he's only taking one breath every 10 yeah. seconds. And she said, I, I can't. There's loads of blood coming oh. out. It's too late anyway. Oh. So he's vomiting blood. Oh, my God, this poor guy. It's really bad. And then she calls the paramedics eventually after, I think, he's on the edge of death or maybe he seems to have passed away to her. She calls the paramedics then. But Michelle, she doesn't give them very good information they are asking where she lives she's giving the wrong address she's giving the wrong name <gasps> this is 10 past 12 in the afternoon on the 26th of october so it's all week she's been you know up to no good and this is the i don't know what the date day is i'm a bit confused so anyway she made it so difficult for the paramedics to get to her in time and i don't know if you remember the layout of antle street there's a I think there's an ambulance station right there they would have been there in minutes but it took them about 20 minutes half an hour to get there in the end because of all this false information she was yeah, giving right fuck it's premeditated like it's she's absolutely knows what she's doing it certainly sounds like that it sounds like she knows anyway the paramedics finally arrived she told the officers at the scene that she had administered drugs to joe in a murder suicide pact but that she had chickened out after seeing joe vomiting dark brown blood for hours okay i call bullshit on that Jesus. They call bullshit. So the police that were, had arrived at this point and they reported that when they turned up that Anu was hysterical and she was struggling with them. They were trying to hold her back and keep her out of the room. She was throwing herself on Joe's body, wailing, saying, bring him back, bring him back. This isn't supposed to happen. All of this kind of thing. But unfortunately, Joe had passed away and there's nothing they could do about it. She sounds like she's putting mm -hmm. it on. I know I sound really unsympathetic towards this woman, but I'm sorry. Like, she injected this guy over and over and over until it's horrifying. until he basically died. And then she pretends like, oh, yeah. I'm so sad. Well, she knew exactly what she was doing, surely. Okay, so we, she went to court. Good. They obviously had a bang to rights, you'd think. She went to court eventually, I think after a couple of yeah. months. Her friend and accomplice, Madavi Rowe, was also charged with conspiracy to murder and administering a stupefying drug, I believe. Anu told the police how she had injected Chinkwe with heroin so that he wouldn't interfere with the suicide attempt. And also she told her family in letters from the remand centre that she had the perfect life, attractive, money, law career, everything. Now nothing because of my utter, utter stupidity. I bet everyone is laughing at me now. Um, I don't think they're laughing. She's got a warped take on her life. So during her trial, a psychiatrist presented evidence of borderline personality disorder to explain her behaviour at the time. Okay. And initially, Anu and Madavi were tried jointly in October and November 98. But this trial was aborted in November due to inadmissible evidence of, on one of the women. We don't know okay. which one. The second trial, listen to this, Michelle. Anu elected to stand trial by judge alone because she didn't have to have a jury. This is a thing you can do in Canberra. Only in Canberra. As we know, having spent some time there, you grew up there. Canberra has laws unto itself because it's the one little state all of its own. It's the capital state. Yeah. It's the federal state. They've got their own laws. So anyway, evidence came through that Anu Singh was mentally ill and had diminished responsibility. And that was presented by the defence. Prosecutors called an expert witness to testify that Anu had appeared rational and assertive on the night she was arrested. But Judge Justice Crispin had decided for himself that she was... Not guilty of murder due to diminished responsibility, but guilty of manslaughter. 
sentenced to 10 years imprisonment with four years non-parole. So that, including the time she'd already served, she ended up doing two years. <gasps> that was a slap in the face for Joe Chinque's family. Oh, my God. Do you know what? There, there's a reason she didn't want a jury because a jury would have just gone, nah, you're, you're getting sent down. Yeah. You killed someone. This little jury <laughs> right here in front of me, she's hung down and courted her already. So Madhavi Rao's trial, she was found not guilty of all charges against her. What? So yes. this man loses his life. He is injected yes. repeatedly and they basically yes. get off. They walk. Oh, my yeah. God. So the judge had decided that there was reasonable doubt that Madhavi Rao had assisted in the murder attempt and rejected the prosecutor's argument that, that Rao had a legal duty of care to Chinque at the time of his death. So she's since changed her name and left the country. Yeah, as you fucking would. While in jail, Anu Singh finished her law degree and a master's degree in criminology. And in 2010, she wrote a PhD thesis on women who commit crimes. And she got herself a job at Cabramatta Community Centre conducting research and handing out syringes to addicts at the local needle exchange bus. Are you joking? No, I'm not. Helen Garner's book, which I'm currently reading, and there's so much more in there, but perhaps we can do this for an extra droppings. It takes the view that Madhavi should have seemed to be guilty despite being timid and controlled by Anu and that she, they should have all been done for murder, to be quite frank. So Joe Chinque's consolation, the book and the film, yeah. was called this because he didn't have a voice anymore. His family were deeply damaged and devastated by the murder of their son. And there's also evidence showing that after his death, Joe had packed some belongings and had written in his work planner that he indicated he was planning on leaving Anu. So she knew this. That's why she wanted to get rid of him. Potentially, we don't know. I mean, she did her time. She's out. Sadly for the Chinque family, they never got, you know, they never even got their time in court. I mean... Anu Singh's father got to get up and speak in court, but the Chinkways were surprised when this happened because they were told no family allowed to speak in court. She also, at the sentencing, she um, Maria Chinque wrote a victim impact statement, yep. which was read silently by the judge, whereas other people who gave evidence, their quotes were used in all of the media afterwards. But of course, Maria Chinque's voice was never heard either. That's why this book by Helen Garner is so important. It gives Joe a voice. It gives his family a voice. And it's unfortunate if indeed that Anu was having a mental break at the time, which she still stands by, that she wasn't well. And her psychiatrist at the time said, if she had been given proper care, this would not have happened. Well, but the fact is it did. It did. And an innocent man lost his life. And what about those ghouls watching oh. and not doing anything about it? Nine people who were involved in this and not one of them warned him. Not one of them did anything about it. What was really going on here? There, is, I think there's so much more to this case. And maybe when you get to the end of the book, you'll know. But it's shocking to me that basically you can kill someone and get away literally with murder. Is that it? Two years for a life? Yeah. I think I think that's a lot of people's feelings mm. as well. Imagine if this was someone that you knew. They were needlessly murdered and then got away with it. Yeah. Well, listen, if you want to read more about it, Helen Garner's book is out there. Also, Satira Sanukas's film, The Consolation of Joe Cinque, is out there on Stars Play, I noticed the other day. You have to pay for that. But I might get the free trial and watch it. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much. That's a really shocking story. Well, I've got a story. It 
again, actually. It's true crime time and... True crime time. What? True True crime time. And it involves drugs as well. But really, it's an act of stupidity. So basically, I was talking to my friend Zoe Folbig, who I think we've talked about her before on the podcast. She's this amazing author. She's uh, written quite a few books. If you haven't read any, she's written this bestseller called The Note. Big up! Yeah, based on the true story of how she met the one. She was telling me about this BBC documentary that she'd watched about a girl called Michaela McCollum. That's a lot of mix in a name, isn't it? Michaela McCollum. <laughs> and <laughs> uh, she's from Northern Ireland. And this documentary is all about her recalling this personal experience. The documentary is called Hi, Confessions of an Ibiza Drugs Mule. Oh. So there's some clues right there. It's not Hi, Confessions <laughs> of a... No, it's Hi. Hi. H-I-G. H and it's uh, she got high exactly. Do you know what the way Zoe was talking about it? I thought I need to fucking watch this. So anyway, shout out to Zoe for uh, putting me onto this story. She gets researcher cred. Well, yeah, researcher, not a unicorn cred. What? No unicorns. She's not a unicorn. She's real. We know she's real because she's written books and she there's evidence of her being real. (laughs) She's real. So this story, we're going to head back to 2013. Honestly, for me, this is a cautionary tale because... Because you considered a career in drug running as well? No, I watched Bangkok Hilton when I was growing up. So did I. And it scared the shit out of me about yes. ending up in a Thai jail yep. for smuggling drugs Nicole or having Kidman. them planted on you. Yeah, with a curly perm. Yeah. What's his name? Not our favourite Ben Mendelsohn. I'm trying to think of his name. Noah Taylor. Was Noah Taylor in that? Yeah. There was a brother and sister that who were also Australian in the Bangkok Hilton. Nicole Kidman made friends. Her character made friends with them. They were actually shot by firing squad. And her younger brother, Noah Taylor, was mentally impaired of, oh the, of the girl who's the actress. I can't remember her name. She was in everything. She had the blonde hair, short blonde hair. Arky Whiteley. Is that her? Oh, was it Arky Whiteley? I'm not okay. sure. Oh, well, we'll have to put a link to that in the show notes. But Bangkok Hilton scared the shit out of me. So I was never going to be a drugs mule. But we've got Michaela McCollum. She didn't see that film. No, she did not. And I don't know if you remember when this story came out. It hit the headlines. It, It was fucking massive. And it's a crazy story because... It's basically, for me, when I was watching it, it's like a thriller. Like, you kind of know the ending, but you don't know how. Basically, it's this story of these two pretty party girls. A ridiculous updo. Loads of drugs. Cartels. A lot of stupidity. Lies. This brutal prison. Danger, deception, strength, acceptance, responsibility. And they ended up being known as the Peru 2. Peru 2. So so on the 6th of August, 2013, Michaela McCollum from Dungannon, and that's a small rural town in Northern Ireland, and Melissa Reid from Lindsay in Scotland, they rocked up to Jorge Chavez International Airport in Lima, Peru, with their suitcases absolutely fucking stuffed with cocaine. What? They didn't even swallow it? Or stick it up their foof? No, no, it wasn't up there. It was, yeah, in 
their suitcases. And look, they actually got past the sniffer dogs (laughs) and the security. And Michaela was like, fuck yeah, you know, we've made it. And she actually watched her bag go through on the checking conveyor belt. But seconds later... She got this tap on the shoulder and she and Melissa were arrested oh. on suspicion of drug smuggling. And yeah, spoiler alert, when their luggage was searched, the Peruvian authorities found more than 11 kilos of coke oh. in their baggage. And from that moment on, for Michaela and Melissa, you know, their life just turned into a nightmare. Oh, no. But let's just rewind a bit here because what I find so interesting about this story is how Michaela McCollum got involved in the first place. Well, I'd love to know that part of the story. Yeah. And and also how she got out of this like hellhole. Apparently in the middle of June in 2013, Michaela had said goodbye to her family and friends in Northern Ireland. She was one of 10 kids, all Catholic from really straight laced family. But by the sounds of it, she was quite wild and she just wanted more from life than being stuck in this tiny little town in the middle of nowhere. So she booked herself a one-way ticket to Ibiza and lied to her family, said she had a job to go through and off she went. She didn't know anyone. She was 19 years old. That takes balls, I think, because she'd literally never left the country before, never been overseas. And I think it just shows that she's really confident. And look, she was young. She was attractive. She had a fucking cracking bod. And there are all these pictures of her in bikinis and skimpy party outfits. And she looks great. Just like a really fun girl. But she didn't tell her parents any of this. And the thing was, she was going to Ibiza in mid-season. So, you know, she had no job lined up and all the jobs were gone when she got there. So it was quite tough going for her for a few weeks. Mm -hmm. But in the documentary, she says that when she arrived, she didn't even unpack a suitcase. She just went straight out to party. And she just went wild, you know. She was like hoovering up the drugs, dancing all night, just enjoying being in Ibiza. And pretty quickly, she started meeting people and taking loads of party drugs with her new besties. She met up with this girl called Parry. They became really close. They just were taking drugs and having fun. And eventually, she and Parry got jobs as dancers. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't really a regular income. So they realized they needed better jobs because... You don't earn much in Spain and the economy is shit. So, you know, and I'm sure they were probably just working for tips. She did manage to get a a bar job, but pretty quickly she realized that it wasn't just drinks she was meant to be selling. Wow. Yeah. So people would come up and be like, oh, yeah, can I have a, you know, gin and tonic and, you know, half a gram of Coke. Oh. And. Yeah, and so, oh, no, no, she wasn't selling a body. Oh, I thought it was the bod. No, drugs. And it's really common there, like especially in the West End where all the like big, big clubs are. Mm. So she was like, fuck, you know, she went to her boss. They're asking me for drugs. He's like, yeah, 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 just, just ring it up. It's all fine. Put it under huh. this or whatever. So... She thought it was dodgy, but she thought, well, fuck it, I need a job. And it was pot kettle black because she Mm. was taking loads of drugs. So she was like, okay, fine. So, yeah, she was selling drugs. She was taking drugs. And I mention this because I think she just got really desensitized to the whole idea of drugs Drugs. because and the illegality of it because everyone was doing it and turning a blind eye to it. 
So just keep that in mind. So then she meets this guy called Davey and I think his name must have been changed for the for the documentary because elsewhere I read that his name was Enrique but we'll call him Davey. So she said he seemed really quiet and shy and really nice and he didn't do drugs at all. Mm-hmm. And Michaela thought, I really need to like hang around with people who aren't doing drugs because she was just getting fucked up She was the whole hitting time. saturation point. Yeah, she was caning it. And she was taking Coke, she was taking ketamine. Jeez. And yeah, so when she was hanging out with Davy, she wasn't doing anything. And then she started kind of falling in love with this guy. Turns out, Davy's actually a drug dealer. Oh. Yeah, and her friends did not like him, but she was smitten and she was like, fuck it, I don't care that he's a drug dealer. So one night, Davy gives her acid. And for anyone who doesn't really know what acid does to you your brain just fucking trips out it's an hallucinogenic and you know it's not like hocal speed where it's just hyped up reality like acid just fucks with your mind you see things you hear things you know and she was having a full-on acid trip in the middle of it he says to her hey can you go to barcelona for me and pick up a package oh god and she's fucked up on acid. So she's like, yeah, oh, sure. No. Oh, yeah. And she just keeps dancing. And then, you know, like. She dances all the way to Barcelona. Well, she's on acid. So she's just, she's dancing. And then a couple of hours later, while she's still tripping out, he's like, hey, we've got to go. And she's like, go where? And he's like, you're going to pick up that package. And she'd forgotten about it. You know, she's she's high on drugs. And then, so he, like, packs her up, packs her off back to her hotel, says put some clothes in a, in a suitcase. He's kind of, like, forcing her. Yep, you said you'd do it. You said you'd do it. Oh so she's thinking, okay, look, I'll just go to Barcelona and pick up this fucking package for him. It's fine. But she's still tripping. And then she's sort of coming down. And anyone who, like, coming down off acid is really fucking serious so he's there saying don't worry like I'll pay you you'll make loads of money you'll have a great time and you can stay in Ibiza for the rest of the summer and not even have to work and she's like yeah yeah okay sounds good so he's like don't worry it's not a big deal he's just reassuring her while she's coming down and feeling a little bit uh, you know not sure of herself and feeling a bit exactly unsure of what she's doing And he's saying, oh, we've got people working in the airports. Don't worry. You're not going to get caught. And then this other guy, Mateo, he steps in and he starts reassuring her as well. And she thought, well, I'm only going to Barcelona. Like I'm staying in Spain. You know, how, how hard can it be? Then they take her phone. So she's cut off from any communication with anyone else. And she's a good Catholic girl. She was ringing her family like every day. And all of a sudden, they're not hearing from her. Then they say to her, hey, change your plan. You're actually going to Mallorca where you're going to meet another girl. And then you're going to Lima. And look, I'm not saying Michaela's thick as shit because (laughs) in many ways, she kind of turns out to have these amazing street smarts. But she says she doesn't know where Lima was. She still thinks she's going to Spain. Lima's in Spain. Right. So no alarm bells are ringing at this point. She just thinks she's maybe going to some other island or whatever. Mm-hmm. So she gets to Mallorca. She meets this girl, Melissa, who's Scottish and the same age as her. 
And they both get on a plane to Lima. But it's only when she sees the flight path on the screen that she's like, what the fuck? I'm going to South America. (laughs) And she realized she's like getting stitched up. Mm -mm. And they get there. They're met by this guy, uh, I think it's Mateo. When they were in Mallorca, I forgot to mention they'd seen they'd met up with this guy Julio who had a like drawer full of guns. So she's feeling really trapped. She's feeling really like, what the fuck have I got myself into? They've booked her onto this tour for seven days, seeing like Machu Picchu and all the all the big sites. She fucking okay. hates so at least it. Get to see a few things. Oh, she didn't like. Well, that. well, no. It's more that if they get stopped, they can um, say, oh, they look like tourists. Right. They're not just there. They're there, there for seven days. They're yeah. getting a story. They're, they're giving them a story. Gotcha. But at this time, she's like freaking out and she realizes she's she's in too deep. Yeah. Meanwhile, back in Ibiza, the parents have freaked out. They've called authorities. My daughter's gone missing. We haven't heard from her. They think she's dead in a ditch. There's a massive oh, media campaign, social media as well. She's on TV, missing girl in Ibiza, and she's gorgeous. So her face is all over the newspapers, all over the TV, and everyone's freaking out. Blows up in the news. They think she's dead. There are posters everywhere. But over in Lima, finally it comes to time where Michaela and Melissa have to take the package back to Ibiza. But it's not a package. Oh, God. It's 11 kilos of cocaine worth 1.5 million pounds. And they've stuffed it into these packets of Quaker Oats. Honestly, I'm sorry, but like who goes to Peru and brings back a whole fucking suitcase full of Quaker Oats? (laughs) Like it's not even a good cover story. And I think that's, yeah, again, where they realized, fuck, we're, we're getting stitched up here. And this is heavy shit. So she's like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. And he's like, we're watching you. Don't worry. It's all fine. Don't let me down. You know, there are people in the airport. If you get caught, we've got people. So just don't worry about it. But she's thinking, I'm fucked. Mm -hmm. And if if I really am fucked, I'm in Peru and I'm even more fucked. And she felt like she remembered the guns. She's got these guys saying, we're watching you. So she knows, like, these guys are serious. And she's like, fuck it, I just have to go through with it and hopefully I get through and see where we end up. And look, I don't know if she's naive or stupid because, quite honestly, if you get caught, the drug cartel's not coming to bail you out. You're on your own, you know. And they're going to tell you whatever they can to make you feel okay with what you're about to do. So, like I said, they put their bags through, they thought they got through and then boom, they get busted. And when you see footage of the girls, they look really, really confused. Like, is this part of the plan? There's filming? There's film of them being arrested? Yeah, yeah. And they look like, when the people are going through their bags, they look like, fuck, is this part of the plan? Like, is this one of Mateo's guys? Are are we going to get out of this? But shit goes down fast. And the oats turn out to be coke. That's when they realise as well, they're absolutely fucked. So they made up a story. They said that they were coerced at gunpoint to take the drugs. International media lapped this shit up because, you know, Michaela's gone from girl missing in Ibiza to girl forced to be drug mule. You know, two pretty white girls, photos in all the newspapers. And again, the story 
blows up. There are GoFundMe pages and fundraisers to help bring the girls oh. home. The whole time, the Peruvian authorities were like, this is bullshit. You know, they could see straight through the story because in Peru, the cartels don't force people because they don't have to. <sighs> they promise people money yeah. and they promise them, you know, a better life. So they know that nobody ever gets forced to do this. And there's actually a translator that takes pity on them because they can see they're lying. And she's like, listen, your lawyer's not going to tell you to change your story, but I'm here to tell you in Peru, if you don't tell the truth, the Peruvian judge is going to say you're not taking responsibility for your actions and you're going to get hit with the maximum sentence. Mm. So at the last minute, they do change their story and they say, yeah, we did it. And of course, the media turns on them and they get so much hate from everyone basically saying, yeah, okay, you decided to be a drugs mule, you get everything you deserve. Mm. It was really hard for them, really hard for their families and they felt so ashamed at what they'd done. But the judge was like, okay, thank you for the truth. If you want a more lenient sentence, you're going to have to give us some info. Give us the names. And that is that just puts them in a lose-lose situation. Right. You either like give info on the cartel and you get like a bullet in the head. Or and they don't know if they've got people within, you know, who are being paid off within the Lima authorities. Exactly. Peruvian authorities. Yeah. So in the end, Michaela took a risk and she did give some information. And oh because of that, their sentence got reduced to six years, eight months. Wow. So off they went. And they went to a place called Ancona 2, which is Peru's most hardest, most notorious, most shit prison in the middle of fucking nowhere. Oh, dear. And she was in this cell with, like, I think 20 other women. There's no toilet. There's a hole in the ground. Beds don't exist. Blankets don't exist. There's no water. There's not even any food. Oh, my God. This translator brings them fresh water, fresh food. And that's the only way they got through the first few months. for six years. Well, the first few months. Okay. Then Michaela, who's like super depressed, like how the fuck did I end up here? She basically thinks I need to turn this around. She starts noticing that these women in her cell are coming back with like amazing like curly blow dries and freshly painted nails. And she's like, where the fuck are these women getting their hair and nails done? And she figures out that in the jail, there's basically a beauty parlor. Why is there a beauty parlor? Well, there's not. It's like a, it's a concrete room with a couple of chairs right. and a mirror. But Peruvian jails are really different to UK jails, not just because they're like, you know, there's no toilets and food and water. <laughs> but you can actually run a business and earn money in these jails. So the women are actually running this beauty parlor. So she goes there and she applies for a job and she gets it. She wings her way in, even though she has no idea how to cut hair, do blow dries or colors or waxing or anything. But she gets this job. She starts earning money. And through that, she starts learning Spanish. And she really connects with all these women. Most of them are drug mules as well and have been fucked. So, in the end, she ends up saving enough money to bribe her way to getting a court date 
to be seen for potential parole. She bribes someone to get all her paperwork and she eventually does get an expedited court date. No way. Yeah, but in the meantime, because she's doing all these women's hair and nails and everything, they absolutely love her. Uh. And in the jail, they have this thing called a, a Delgada, which is like a uh, – it's the person that is elected on in her cell block to be like the voice of the women. Is that top dog? Kind of. And she puts <laughs> herself forward for it and she gets voted in. My goodness. And she starts really making a difference. Like she puts in a water filter. She gets a microwave so, you know, they can have hot food and clean water. She starts doing like Dancing Wednesdays or something so <laughs> to give these wow. women something to look forward to. And they absolutely love her. And the thing is, when she finally gets this court date, she tells the judge, like, look, I've learned Spanish. I've been a Delgada. I I really have tried to make a difference to the lives of these women. But more than that, I realize I'm st- I was naive and I was stupid and I'm really sorry and I will never, ever touch drugs again. And basically, she gets given parole. Wow. She only, in the end spent just over two and a half years in prison My before goodness. she was released. And But the thing that's really interesting about this story, like I said before, there has been so much hate for Michaela, especially in Northern Ireland where it's such a, a strict religious culture. I mean, because, you know, she brought shame not only to her friends and family, but to her whole country. country. Yeah, and, it, and like I said, at first the press absolutely lapped up this story, but when they came clean and admitted that they weren't, forced to take drugs and they lied the backlash was horrible the thing is like in this documentary she's so likable and I don't know look I do think she was naive but I actually think I mean I have a lot of sympathy for her because I think she was a victim along with all those other women because sure she was basically groomed by the cartel and Mm. she was the perfect person to be groomed because it was the first time she'd been overseas. She was young and dumb and full of party drugs. And it is no accident that they asked her to pick up a package when she was off her face on acid. No one can make a sensible decision like when you're tripping. So she was basically set up. She was so manipulated and made really bad decisions without much thought. I do think that you know, the cartels are not going to let you pull out once you've sort of said yes and you go a little bit along with it. So I think she was trapped in many ways. While I do think you have to be kind of thick to not know where Lima is, (laughs) a lot of people don't know their basic geography, you know. I think a lot of people would not know where Lima is at that age. What happened to the Scottish girl? Uh, she, She ended up getting out, but only because Michaela... Had done all that work, yeah. And she helped her and paid, I think, as well. Wow. For me, the worst part of this story is that on the documentary, there's this guy that's interviewed and he's basically this scary cartel lawyer. And he Mm. basically said he doesn't know her case specifically, but he said it's 99.9% probable that the cartel chose these two girls and deliberately set them up. Because the way he explained it was like this. In every business, you calculate a certain amount of loss into your business. And in this case, it's likely that they thought, okay, we'll put 
1.5 million pounds worth of coke with these girls, set them up and tell the police, tip them off to the police. Mm, Yeah. And then put another five dudes with 300 kilos on that flight. Right. So they've given up these two young, dumb girls to get the real coke going through. Exactly, a decoy. They And he said it is a classic cartel tactic. So they were set up, more than likely they were set up because, mm. quite frankly, they didn't do much to disguise it. They put it in Quaker Oats. I mean. So, you know, it's ridiculous. And that's why I feel really sorry for these two girls. Yes. Because, yes, they're stupid. And, yes, drugs are bad and drugs kill lives. And yes, they lied to the police, but ultimately these girls were groomed and they were manipulated and used mm-hmm. by the cartel and then abandoned in Peru. Well, there yeah. are some scary people out there, Michelle, who'll do anything as we've learned in today's episode. So let this be a cautionary tale to anyone considering a career in drug mule In <laughs> Muleism. <laughs> <laughs> so just quickly, uh, Michaela, she got out. She's never allowed to set foot in Peru again. And fair enough. She'll never find it. No, God, Peru, where? And she's got two twin boys. She wrote a book about her experiences. And now she's apparently an influencer on Instagram with nearly 100,000 followers. Wow. And Melissa lives a quiet life in Scotland. Wow, what an incredible story. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you, Zoe, for the heads up on that one as well. Where can we see that documentary? It sounds fascinating. It's a BBC documentary and it currently is still on I player. I'm going to watch the shit out of that. <laughs> well, you know the story now. So anyway, <laughs> but it's really good. And she's fantastic. She was so warm. So yeah, give it a watch. You said something about an insane top knot. Oh my God. Or updo. She has this updo, which is absolutely insane. You know where you like put the donut on your bun yeah. and yeah. then you like fold over. It's literally like big as a fucking pizza. Like another head. It is like another head and she and she even says, I have an infamous updo because that's what everyone remembers. Did you steal my scrunchie? Oh, have a look in your hair bag. Oh, sorry, pet. What was that? All we can do now is just to remind you that one thing, if you do anything this week, just please, wherever you are. Oh, that's it. Thank you. Wherever you are, exactly what she said, wherever you are, <laughs> whatever, whatever you, you do, just, just keep eavesdropping. 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 Eavesdropping.